The Hot 4 podcast this week is proudly sponsored by Chris Malt. Since 1870, Crisp has been producing the finest malt at Great Ribera in Norfolk. With five maltings located in the best barley growing areas in the UK, they produce a wide range of malts and non-malted cereals in 25 kilogram sacks for craft brewers and distillers all over the world. They still work one of the last remaining floor maltings in England and use it to make their pioneering heritage malts. They also craft roasted and crystal malts of unprecedented quality on their vertical all-electric tower roasting plants, the only one of its kind in the UK. Check out their website for more information about their range of malts and also their educational blogs and webinars too at chrismalt.com. That's chrismalt.com. I'm Nick Law and you're listening to the Hop Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hop Forward is a weekly podcast dedicated to the craft beer industry, featuring interviews, discussions, and stories from the whole brewing supply chain from grain to glass. So grab yourself a glass, pour yourself a beer, and get ready to hop forward in the brewing and beer business. Welcome to another sesh on the Hop Forward Podcast. I have this dream. My dream is to live in a place like Sea Houses in Northumberland in the UK. If you're not from the UK, Northumberland is just like one of the best places on planet Earth. It has these stretches of coast and beach where there aren't many tourists. There are people out walking their dogs and that kind of thing, but there's no arcade machines. There's no candy floss. It's not like going to Blackpool. Again, if you're not from the UK, you might not appreciate what that's like. (laughs) It's an experience, put it that way. But it's just this idyllic place where you just get this natural sense of the grandness of life. Just all that open sky and open space. Just you feel part of something that's bigger than yourself. Your life kind of shrinks all of a sudden and your problems get smaller as you're stood by the North Sea looking out. And you're reminded that life and the universe is much bigger than you. So I had this dream to move to somewhere like Sea Houses up to the coast and to brew, to open a brewery, a bit like Whitby Brew if you've ever been there. So I have this brewery where basically I can make beers according to the seasons and draw from the things of the earth and what's around me to live within this natural rhythm. Maybe after all, deep down, I was destined to live in a monastery or better yet, a hermitage. Oh, please, God, yes. <laughs> in solitude, com- contemplating life and brewing beer. But unfortunately, globalization has put asunder to all that. You can walk into any supermarket and get strawberries all year round. We can have chocolate whenever we want it. That's not a bad thing. Uh, You can have asparagus, avocado, or whatever the latest hipster food is yesterday, today, and forever more. Whenever, however you want it. Both Pete Brown, the beer writer, and spiritual guru Rob Bell, go listen to the Robcast, it's amazing. They talk about the invention of the light bulb and the industrial age and the clock and how we no longer have this rhythmic cyclical life, you know, getting up going to sleep with the sun. But we have this life that is now on a linear trajectory, a progressive life, a life that doesn't go round and round the seasons, but goes straight forward. And don't get me wrong, there are so many great things about modern life. The internet, YouTube, cars, the double IPA. But I feel like deep down, we're missing something. 
And the only way I can put this is, remember during lockdown, when you'd be sat in your garden because you're on furlough or having a much needed break from homeschooling and the sun was out in all its glorious heat. And you'd be sat there and you'd be looking up and you hear the sound of a plane. And I'd look up and be like, oh, wow, there's a plane in the sky because planes weren't really going anywhere. We were during lockdown and people weren't really traveling. And we had this moment, this chance to just slow the fuck down and become one with that rhythm almost because it wasn't like you're on annual leave and you're thinking in the back of your head, oh shit, like (laughs) the work's carrying on and I'm not there. When I come back next week, my inbox is going to be flooded. Everybody had stopped and everybody was adhering to this natural rhythm. But now things are opened again. We've picked up the pace and it's all like, go, go, go. So I don't know about you, but I feel like it's so much more. And again, there's so many great things about being able to go back to the pub and interacting with others and so on and so forth. But I promised myself I wouldn't do this. I promised myself that when we went back into life, we weren't going to have this, right, get the kids out to brownies, get them out to school, brew a beer, make a podcast. <laughs> like it's all just picked up again. I'm back in that linear life rather than that cyclical one, the slow, unforced rhythms of grace. Which comes back to my dream. What I'm really after is slowness, is contemplation. Maybe this is why I call myself a brewing, balding, modern monk. But why aren't we brewing beers more seasonally? There's this demand for hazy IPAs because there's a saleability to them. They sell really well. That's what people want to drink. But that's driven by money and capitalism. And it's easy for me to sit in my chair here and now while there's money in the bank and be all like, I'm going to brew a brown ale. I'm going to brew a barley wine or whatever it is that is taking my fancy. But I know, and I've been there myself and experienced this myself, that sometimes you're forced to brew the beers that are going to bring home the bacon. But if we were to hit the reset button, what would our beer styles look like? If money was no object, what would you brew? How can we tap back into the patterns and the rhythms of Mother Earth? What can we forage? What can we find? How can we make the most of the hop harvest and get those fresh green hops into our brew kettles within a matter of hours? In this episode, I talk to beer author and the co-host of the craft beer channel, Johnny Garrett. If you don't know Johnny, Johnny's an absolutely swell guy with an insane amount of knowledge about beer, the supply chain, beer styles, and the brewing industry as a whole. And his YouTube channel is not only excellent, but it's enjoyed by over 100,000 people from across the world and is growing daily. And Johnny has authored a new book called A Year in Beer, where he talks about the subject of seasonality. So I wanted to get his take on all this in the form of an industry perspective and how we can affect change through the beers we brew in keeping with the seasons in which we live. I think you're going to get a lot out of today's episode. I absolutely loved chatting to Johnny about this. And I don't want to give too much away about the conversation that we had, because you just need to tune in to our dialogue and take it in for yourself. 
So before we crack open this amazing discussion with Johnny Garrett about the year in beer, let me take a moment to tell you all about Hot Forward, how you can find out more and how you can get ahead in the brewing and beer business. If you like the Hot Forward podcast, then follow us on all the socials at Hot Forward Beers. Subscribe to the show and leave us a review on iTunes and Spotify and all of the good podcasting platforms. And visit our website, hotforward.beer, to connect with us and find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business with branding and creative media for breweries, bars, bottle shops and supply chain businesses. The Hot Forward podcast this week is proudly sponsored by Chris Malt. Since 1870, Crisp has been producing the finest malt of Great Ribera in Norfolk. With five maltings located in the best barley growing areas in the UK, they produce a wide range of malts and non-malted cereals in 25 kilogram sacks for craft brewers and distillers all over the world. They still work one of the last remaining floor maltings in England and use it to make their pioneering heritage malts. They also craft roasted and crystal malts of unprecedented quality on their vertical all-electric tower roasting plant, the only one of its kind in the UK. Check out their website for more information about their range of malts and also their educational blogs and webinars too at chrismalt.com. That's chrismalt.com. For now, grab a beer and let's crack open today's discussion. Today on the Hot Four podcast, I'm joined by beer writer and co-host of the Craft Beer Channel, Mr. Johnny Garrett. Hello, hello. How are we doing? I'm all right, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, I can't. I can't complain. Well, I could complain, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> there you go. That's, <laughs> uh, that, that's the spirit. Um, so, so Johnny, you've you've written a book. Yeah, uh, managed to pull pull a book out of the the proverbial in a pandemic year, which was about as ridiculous as it seems given that it's it's quite heavily a travel book right is this your first book or have you written a book before? this is uh this is book number three. Oh right um okay. but it's the first one that i've done entirely on my own so the previous two have been i mean i've written them but they've been sort of creative collaborations with brad my co-host at the craft beer channel where you know he's done the photography some of the concepts all of the designs and then i've done the, the writing side this is the first one where it's all my photography all my words all my concept. Um, so it was, it was surprisingly, I've, people talk about writing books as being quite a lonely process and I never experienced that, but this time I definitely understood it. Um, yes. I mean, well, talk me through the process of writing it um, and then and then tell me what the book's about. Well, so yeah, it was, it, was, it was an interesting one because for all three of my books, usually the idea is when you want to write a book, you come up with a concept, you write a book proposal and you send it out to possibly agents first who will then broker the deal or you send it straight out to the publishers. I've never actually experienced that because for all three books, the publishers approach me. Right. Um, and the, the, the last two times they've come at me with a concept as well. So the idea of writing something about seasonality and brewing was, you know, came originally from camera and I was slightly skeptical because I sat there sort of thought, you know, what, what could I do? How could I turn this into a 60, 70,000 word tome when I think most people's experience of it and and what we think of when we think about seasonal brewing is like, oh, well, yeah, I drink Pilsners in summer and Stouts uh, in autumn and winter. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I wanted the book deal. So <laughs> I started really sort of started to drill down. And what I did was I just made a calendar 
and plugged in like the big events that happen in the UK, obviously things like the malt and the hop harvests, the apple harvest, um, and sort of looked at that and was like, okay, so there's quite a lot there, not a whole book, but there's more than you kind of think of if you were just sort of conversationally bandying the idea around in a pub. And then I started plugging in things like, well, spontaneous beer has to be, has to be brewed and, and barreled in winter. Um, historically, we'd have, you know, brewed Metzens in March and then they were the, the original beers at Oktoberfest. You've got these beers aging throughout the summer. We've got things like Christmas beer, Easter beer, um, and all this kind of stuff. We've got St. Patrick's Day where suddenly we all drink porter and stout for a reason we don't really understand. <laughs> and it sort of just started to fill itself in. So at that point, you know, I, I found I could write something that would have been like a guide to drinking throughout the year, but I wanted to do something a bit more than that. And mm. I sort of radicalized myself to some extent by setting out that calendar and starting to write about it started to realize that drinking seasonally is a really wonderful way to get yourself out of the ruts that we all find ourselves in. So we all get addicted to IPA, to Pilsners, maybe to Porters or Bitters for a bit. And we just sort of go around this circle of drinking those three incredibly um, pintable kind of beers. And in the writing of this, suddenly I was drinking all kinds of styles I hadn't really thought about in a long time, like brown ales, brown stouts. Um, I've cracked open my cellar of Gerzes again, which I hadn't really touched in a long time and really started getting into the idea of tying the context um, of the beer. So, you know, the the weather, um, the time of year, the people you're with, the food you've just eaten or the food you're eating with it, um, the time of day, um, where exactly you're drinking. Is it outside? Is it inside? Is it somewhere in between the two? Is it a pub garden or your own garden? And starting to think, you know, could I change the flavors of these beers a little bit or my understanding of these beers a little bit by putting them more in context? And, you know, I found that you 100% could. Um, and the book sort of littered with examples. In particular, there's one where uh, Brad and I were actually on a shoot and we're drinking a beer made with Hannah Malt, this heritage Pilsner Malt, the original Pilsner Malt that was used in Pilsner Raquel in a field of Hannah Malt. And if I'm entirely honest, I couldn't taste any of the hops or the yeast or anything. All I could taste was malt. And it was a slightly strange experience um, just because it was just so suggestive mm. um, and, and trying to, you know, extrapolate that out across the year. Yeah. Amazing. Just turn down your mic a little bit more um, and then I'll not be thinking in the back of my mind. Oh, it's coming in hot points. Alrighty. I probably get louder as I get more excited as well. Cool. All right. Hopefully that's better. Oh, awesome. Cool. I mean, it, it sounds, definitely sounds interesting and I'd love to come at it uh, today on, from an industry point of view, I know you've done a, a couple of episodes with um, people like uh, Steve and Martin from Beer O'Clock Show talking about it. Um, but from, I guess from an industry, I guess from an industry, oh bloody, I can't remember words. <laughs> I did that chef with half yesterday I'm, I'm, and then I didn't sleep very well last night. So I'm, That'll do it. Yeah. Um, and I guess from an industry perspective, I've got a whole bunch of questions, starting with something I've seen online recently. I don't know if you've, you've seen um, Buxton Brewery have released a British IPA into a supermarket. Um, it's called Brit Hop, which I think is just a great name. Um, so that, <laughs> that that caught my eye in and of itself. But it's I think it's hopped with Jester, Olicana and Harlequin. Mm -hmm. And the, the hop level they've managed to get out of that beer is 
the best analogy you can give it is like if you have an American IPA, it's like drinking Nirvana live at Reading, but drinking Brit Hop is like drinking Nirvana unplugged. So it's not quite as sort of spiky and as aggressive, but you get the same kind of qualities in a much smoother kind of way. And I guess I'd be interested from you thinking about the seasonality of what you were just saying about standing in that field of, of barley uh, with the heritage malt is why you think that brewers seem to just go straight for the jugular with American hops. Um, or another thing I've seen online recently is all the Oktoberfest beers coming out. And yeah, it, you know, it's Oktoberfest. That's a big deal in the world of beer. But, um, you know, we, we're actually harvesting our own hops in the UK and our own um, barley, which is used across the world. And yet we don't seem to celebrate that as much as a, a festival that happens in Germany. I just wondered if you had any takes on that, you could shed any light on that and, and why you think brewers aren't firstly looking to their own terroir um, and provenance, for want of a better word. Mm-hmm. I've, I've got a million takes. Um, where go, should we start? Yeah, I, go for it. I, I guess the first thing we should, we should consider is the fact that British hops, German hops, American hops, they're all great for certain things, right? So American hops have, you know, for the last 20, 30 years, been the hops for American-style brewing, for mm-hmm. hop-forward, um, basically IPA-style brewing. There's a million different styles of IPA now. We could probably call it a style of brewing. Um, and so w- that was what was popular, you know, when the craft beer revolution took off. So we couldn't get that from our British hops. That just wasn't possible. So that's why we didn't look to home to start with. Mm. Um and because what was new and what was exciting was IPA. And, you know, we, I, I guess we kind of forget with the excitement of the IPA movement, there were still new breweries opening that were making delicious bitters and porters and um, that kind of thing and using English hops. But all we were talking about was the American style stuff. So that was just because it was, it was really popular and our heads got turned, I think. Um, now that we're starting to look at English style, uh, sorry, English hops, um, there's been a sort of a, a norm core trend of falling in love with bitters and porters again, certainly within <laughs> beer writers and hopefully starting to spread to the general public. And we've started using, you know, brilliant British hops, spicy, earthy, hedgerow fruits, those kind of aromas, honey and spice as well from things like Goldings. We've started, you know, falling in love with those again a little bit. Um, but like you say, you know, that beer was with Harlequin, Jester and Olicana, all of which I think... I'm almost certain all of them are descendants of Cascades. So they're all descendants of American hops. Although, of course, American hops are descendants of British hops and onwards and forever. But I think hopefully, slowly but surely, we'll start to fall in love with our own more modern style hops. I think there's a couple of things that are getting in the way of that. I've talked to a lot of brewers who say that the processing of those dried hops in the UK just isn't up to the standards that they are in the States um and in new zealand and that that's one of the main reasons why they're very hesitant to use these hops okay can you, can you just touch upon that for a second like and just explain to some of the brewers listen to this what you mean by that um well so uh essentially the, the the packaging process of hops is you know make or break for those hops if you do it too hot you can um destroy a lot of the um the essential oils um, or if you don't take enough moisture out, you know, they'd start to rot. Mm. Um, so it's down to, I think, basically the British hop industry, it went into decline um, in the 80s and 90s. It was basically decimated by that point um, because everybody was using 
higher alpha European hops. Um, and I think that a lot of the, the hop suppliers and hop farmers that survived are still using very old equipment, which is working extremely well for some of the, the hops that they're processing. But when it comes to these very high aroma, high um, alpha acid hops, maybe their processing isn't there. They're not cold storing them once they're processed, all this kind of stuff. So even though we're getting these glorious hops, um, sometimes they're not being cared for properly by the either the, the distributors or, or by the farmers. And I don't want to mention names because I don't want to cast aspersions onto anyone in particular. Hmm. But this is the, you know, this is feedback that I've had um, from several sort of IPA brewers when I've gone, why aren't you looking closer to home for these things? They've said, because although we think the varieties are there and although occasionally some of the batches are brilliant, you know, we we can't, you know, put out an 8% dipper using some of these hops because the quality is just not there, but that's going to change. You know, many of the hop, um, hop processing plants and, and farms that I've been to recently for this book, places like Hukins, um, are building, you know, spending millions and millions on new processing plants, um, to improve that and to improve the speed at which they can do it. Um, cause obviously it's a huge bottleneck as well. You know, they want to get more fields, but to get more fields, they need better processing. So I think, you know, British, Hot producing is going through a bit of a um, a bit of a revolution in itself at the moment, and I'm really hoping that in a couple of years' time we'll have caught up quality-wise for those big ones without, you know, destroying or losing focus on the beautiful um, sort of noble hops. Yeah, it's um, that we already have. I, I, I think British hop farmers, in particular, are in a quite a perilous position because I mean it's it's so costly to set up the infrastructure to grow hops, and then you've got the you know the three-year maturity time before the, the flower and all the rest of it and then you know if there's a bad weather season you know with extreme weathers which we're getting more and more of if a, if a field's taken out that's a huge investment just lost on farming hops let alone then having to put more capital expenditure in like you say to um processing them and and the, the new varieties i suppose in some ways and correct me if i'm wrong but i suppose in some ways it's a little bit like how um there's a lack of cold chain supply for beer in the uk and you've got some breweries like cloudwater for example that are re really pushing that and it's become more of a thing that people are, have gotten onto now breweries that is um you know and, and i'm sure i read somewhere that um a large supermarket's looking at their cold chain supply and how they can um supply cold beer and keep it cold in store um so i, I guess for hop farmers it's you know it's almost like they're playing catch up and they've got to throw a lo load of cash at it but if <laughs> people aren't buying the varieties then other than you know, raising finance, where, where does the money come from? Cause there's no real huge demand for these varieties. It's, it's, it almost seems like a negative feedback loop. Well, I think, I think we have to be a bit cautious here because I think British hops are going through a bit of a renaissance, whatever. I think a lot of these hop fields, hop, uh, sorry, hop farmers are growing um, and they have massive challenges and I think they're still sat there. You know, they've seen American hops, New Zealand hops, South African hops, Australian hops, grow exponentially and take over the you know the entirety of that niche but we've got to remember that those beers that are um being made and using those hops rep still represent five percent of the beer that's made in this country so you know car scale is still 25 to 30 percent of what's drunk in this country 
even though it's in serious decline mm. um, volume-wise. But still, there's lots of opportunity for these people to be, you know, growing beautiful um, British hops. Um, and I just think that the, the big change, even on the beautiful old-school hops, is that the way that they're being used by brewers later and later into the boil, so that more and more of that, you know, you know, these hops aren't being boiled to within an inch of their life, so more of that character is being left out in it. So even if you're still going to make very traditional English beer, you're going to need the hop quality to be higher because you're going to be using them in a different way. So I think, you know, there is an opportunity for British hop growers. I don't think we should feel too hard, too sorry for them. And I hope they can raise the finance to mm. do it. Um, and I think that's why we've seen people like Brooke House, you know, come in and be pretty ambitious about what they want to do and what they want to achieve because they see that opportunity there for very high quality, well-processed English and, um, you know, American influenced hops like, like the Jesters and Alicanas. Yeah. I remember um, BRX last year going to a Brookhouse Hops stand and they had a beer that they brewed in collaboration with Paul's Malt. Um, and it was, again, like hops from their farm and, and malted barley from Paul's farm. And and it was it was my favourite beer at the whole event. <laughs> this can that they were giving away was my favourite beer. I was just absolutely blown away by it. Um, mm-hmm. And... Yeah, it would just be so nice. And I guess we'll leave me into the next question about um, sort of malt-driven varieties of beer. Um, it, it would be so nice if, coming full circle with Oktoberfest, like we had our own festival or focus or emphasis or whatever on what we're harvesting here rather than, and don't get me wrong, I love Oktoberfest. I love drinking Marzen's and Doppelbox and all the rest of it. You know, I can't get enough of those beers, but, um, you know, it'd be nice to see more green hot beers. And I know some are coming through. Um, I've, I've seen a few online recently, like from Elusive Brewing and one or two others. Oh, that, that was a collab with me. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, I've not so... actually tried it, but I, uh, yeah, I <laughs> saw that one. Oh, yes. Oh, well, t- talk me through that process before we start talking about Multiply. So what, what, what was it like going to uh, the brewery and brewing that beer? Yeah, well, that was great. So that was so to to launch this book, um, I brewed four collaboration beers with four breweries, uh, with each one representing one of the seasons. Nice. Um, so the autumn one just had to be a green hot beer uh, for me. So yeah, Andy was was up for it. So we drove to uh, a farm in Herefordshire um, early in the morning. Well, no, really early in the morning. I drove down from where I live in Hertfordshire, drove down to Berkshire to Elusive Brew. We mashed in, and then we drove up to up to Herefordshire um, to collect the hops. And we had a really great um, uh, tour of the farm. Um, and I say the farm because the name of the farm is The Farm. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> which didn't come up in Google immediately, you'd be surprised to hear. Um, so yeah, we we drove up there, we collected the hops, they were fresh sovereign hops just off of the field. Uh, we got to sort of fill, fill our own bags, which was kind of cool. Um, and then we drove it back down and we threw them into the brew. Um, and you, there's a video coming out in a couple of weeks of that whole process. But when you're using uh, wet hops, obviously the volume of hops is so much higher because mm. to say, you know, it, it's the same amount of organic matter, but it's not been dried and crushed down. Um, so when we threw it in, I mean, the kettle, we could only put about half of the actual wort into the kettle and the rest was hops and it was full. So <laughs> we had sort of did a half boil and then transferred all that um, across and made almost like a hop extract kind of thing. Um, it's, you know, an absolutely bizarre sort of brewing day. And we've also got a video already. We've did five points, uh, five points to a wet hot beer festival at the Pembury Tavern every year. Well, I don't think they did it last year. 
but um, we followed that process as well. And that was it down at Hukins and the amount of hops going into their very, very big batches of, of best bitter was just incredible. And I was chatting to Ross Hukins who owns Hukins hops. And he was saying, if I could get, if I could sell every, um, every acre of my fields as wet hops, I could retire after a couple of years because they make so much more money from it. It's so much easier because there's so much less processing. Um, that would be kind of the dream for him. And I, I agree that it's a real shame that we don't have um, sort of a, a UK wide celebration of, of green hops. I think it's the most wonderful um, opportunity to sing about our own hops, to sing about our traditional brewers and to sing about our pubs that would be serving them on cars, hopefully. And I really hope that that's going to be a really positive consequence of more focus on British hops that mm. we'll, we'll have that three week season every year where everybody's brewing with these hops and seeing what they can extract from them. Um, but like I say, I mean, I, th- I think that's going to come as our love grows as the quality grows and as hopefully um, interesting car scale grows as well. So yeah. on Wednesday, we've got a big project going live a sponsored playlist with fullers in which we're going to try and it's called keep cask alive and it's trying to give a good boot up the arse of car scale after covid to get it growing again get people excited about it so it's not really a political campaign it's more you know we visit hook norton we visit dark star who obviously you know with hophead were seminal in the stories we visit abbeydale you know to try saison's funky mixed firm saison's on cask and tell the story of vintage ale as well which is where the fullers bit comes in and just you know those stories of completely been lost or, or dominated by, again, the sort of love of American style brewing. And I hope that wet hops, green hops will come back as a result of that norm core trend. Yeah, I guess when you think historically as well, um, you know, the hop picking season, it would be something where everyone in the cities would get on the train and they'd go pick hops and it'd be like a, you know, a full on thing. Um, whereas, it was a holiday, right? You'd, yeah, yeah, you'd yeah. literally go away for a week and go and pick hops. Kind of, yeah. like, kind of like going to butlins but <laughs> well maybe not um but yeah it's um it, it would definitely be great to see more of that for sure um just just moving on to some of the other um beer styles so you mentioned like uh, brown ales and and uh, bitters and that kind of things and I'd, I'd just love to talk a little bit more about uh malt and barley and and wheat and uh, cereals because it, 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 it ipas are just such a dominant force in the world of beer for a lot of beer drinkers and it, it almost feels like brown ales in particular and stuff that's darker that's not a stout people have fallen out of love with those kind of beers but it's it's kind of sad that um you know people don't talk about and i think matt Kurtz makes this point in his book actually um modern british beer um people don't talk and rave about uh the barley varieties that go into certain beers like they do talk about hop varieties i mean can, can you just sort of shed a bit more light on that and and the seasonality of of um growing cereals that we put in beer and maybe maybe what brewers should be thinking about um, when it comes to making that connection between it being harvested and and using it in their beers they're making yeah i mean it i wish i could explain why malt isn't as celebrated as hops i think again it it definitely comes from that excitement around American style brewing, which was very, very much hop, um, hop focused. So lots of the new people that have come into beer are coming expecting big, bold hop flavors. And it drives me 
absolutely mad. My least favorite phrase in the whole of brewing is Twiggy beer. When people talk about Twiggy beer to yep. refer to like real elves, because not only is that hugely dismissive of British hops and of those cast brewers, it's also, it's taking a style that's malt forward and criticizing it based on the hops that are used. You just like, you just completely misunderstood what that style's about mm. and any of its heritage and any of the love and the passion and the expertise that's gone into making these beautiful beers. And it drives me fucking mad. However, um, how we get around that, I think the main thing that we have to be doing is by singing singing it's the praises of malt on our cans. You know, we're, we're always hopping, uh, listing hop varieties, and that's cool. We should be doing that, but we should be talking about the malt variety as well. I mean, I'm sure there's brewers here listening that don't even know the varieties of malt that they're buying. You know, they know that they're buying caramel. They know that they're buying Pilsner malt, but they don't know that it's Hannah or that it's Chevalier or that it's, you know, they might know Maris Otter. That's sort of the one that gets that free pass. But is it Planet um, uh, Planet Barley or something like that? Is it Spring or Autumn Sown? All these things that the consumer has no idea about. A lot of brewers might not really consider when they're buying it. And that me as a beer writer up until a year ago has been hugely guilty of completely ignoring. Um, and I think it's going to take a big campaign a big push and a lot of risk taking by brewers distributors beer writers and indeed drinkers in the bar mm. to sort of go you know what no i'm going to try this thing i haven't heard of and and that's kind of what the book is is all about you know you could sit down and have a red ipa in autumn like I, i've lost count of how many times people have gone like oh yeah i drink seasonally you know i switch my ipas to red ipas and then black ipas and you're like that's cool you like ipas i get that <laughs> but you know, if you if you look at a red IPA, you're getting caramel, you're getting toast, you're getting raisins and biscuits sort of uh, underneath that that kind of hop flavor. Have you ever considered if you just took the dry hop rating down five grams per liter, what you've got there is, you know, a very tasty American, albeit American hopped um, car scale. And people just sort of dismiss that as Twiggy because because it hasn't got the, the the American hops on top of it. And I think um, I think there are breweries that do a brilliant job of talking about the malt side of it, um, but there's just not enough um, focus and excitement on it. We've got to see our packaging as sort of two ways. One of it is trying to get picked up by somebody, and the other part of it is trying to educate people as well. Yeah. So to try and get them to pick up that style again, if you've persuaded them to, to buy a certain style. And it's going to be a long old process to get get barley to where it is but we've seen you know crisp did a sponsored video with us on craft beer channel recently about hannah malt because for exactly that reason they were like we've got these three heritage varieties nobody's going to understand what they are unless we put them in front of people that um like the people who watch the craft beer channel that are not new to beer but they're not you know experts but they're absolutely fascinated by the whole process and nobody's telling them about hannah malt yeah definitely and crisp were on the podcast last week talking about heritage malt and uh, incidentally, uh, sponsoring this podcast um, and the next one's coming up, you know, and, and I think a company like Chris. There you go. See, they're um, nailing it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I've, I, I'm have i happy to endorse Chris because I use Chris when I brew. Um, and th they've always given me as a brewer, um, you know, re really good expertise. Um, Carl Heron's been brilliant, although I understand Carl's moved on now. But um you know that the, the passion that they show for for malt is unprecedented. I think it's you know um, 
the, the thing that always astounds me when it comes to malts and brewers is I've met so many brewers who, you know, when I'll say, oh, you know, if you, if you, if you tried this, like, you know, try like chewing on some and they, they kind of look a little bit flummoxed, like what? <laughs> and it's kind of like, well, you eat shreddies in the morning, right? You know, it's just like <laughs> literally like just get a handful and eat it. And I, I, well, I still do this every, um, malt variety I use, I, I'll, I'll chew on it and I'll eat it and I'll, I'll, I'll get a flavor for it and, um, you know, and work out what it's going to bring. I mean, I tried best ale malt, um, in a, a small IPA and brewing, oh, there's a, there might be an oxymoron, but I'll leave that for another day. Um, <laughs> a, a, a hazy pale ale, that's what we'll call it. Um, the other day and, and I'd not brewed with it before. And, um, I think I've just been a bit dismissive of it before. Um, maybe it was just the name best ale, but you know, the, the, the quality of it, it was just stunning, you know, mm-hmm. the, a, almost, a, a, a biscuit like quality, not too far off something like Vienna malt. Um, and I, yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think more brewers should celebrate malt and put on their cans or packaging wherever what they're using and what, what blends they're using and, and get people as excited about that. It's, it's very much the cliche of being the change you want to see in the world. Like if, if you want to see more people drinking malt, malt driven beers, then we've got to be brewing more of them. Mm. than we've got to be putting them out there. And there, I wouldn't say that there's demand for it, but there's definitely interest in it that could be turned into demand because people do say, you know, I, I drink a little bit seasonally, you know, when, because that's what's available on the taps. Like the brewers do shift the flavors that are, that are available and we can take it a little bit further. And ho- I mean, the pubs actually are where the, another risk is going to be taken as well, because they probably know they can get through a keg of hazy pale ale at twice the speed of, of something else. But I mean, how do you go about changing that? That's an industry wide issue that is going to take some time to shift. Mm. I guess I, I'd be interested to know from your perspective when it comes to um, if if we take and I'm I'm not sure how much Cloudwater do this anymore and I, I know I've referenced Cloudwater a couple of times so far um, but I, I remember when in particular when I first came across across Cloudwater back in whenever it was 2017 maybe um, however long ago it was and you know being past this bottle that said modern seasonal beer. And you'd get beers from certain seasons, you know, um, and at certain times of the year, which I guess kind of embodies what you're writing in your book, um, you know, and, and what we said so far about Oktoberfest and Christmas beers. But um, touching po- upon what you just said about um, get landlords getting through hazy IPAs really quickly, um, wh- what do you think about breweries out there where they make a beer like an Oktoberfest beer or Christmas beers classic and that risk they have to balance of, am I going to sell all this by Christmas? Um, a, a classic example would be, and I don't know if you've ever, ever tried it, uh, Bradfield Brewery just starts, well, it's in Sheffield, but it's kind of right on the edge, uh, make this um, Christmas beer called Belgian Blue. Uh, have you ever had it before on, on cask? Uh, I've never tasted it. I've seen it. Around, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's a smashing beer, you know, I think it's, um, blueberries. I think they put in it. Um, but it's, it's so nice, but you see, you just see bottles of it, you know, in local bottle shops for months after Christmas has gone. And, you know, it's got a cow on the front with a Christmas hat on it. 
And there's a real challenge there for brewers if they're brewing these seasonal beers. Like, how do how would you suggest they make that trade off between um, adhering to the to the rhythms, the natural rhythms of life and the seasons versus the saleability of a product that might because you know the calendar goes so quick in and out. You know, it's like Oktoberfest is over by the time this recording comes out, it will be over, and people may still have a load of Marsons to sell. <laughs> Well, I think I think when it comes to medicine, I mean it's already weird because it's it's literally the German for March, but you're selling it in, <laughs> in uh, September and October. I, I think probably people get through that. If you call it a fest beer, I mean it's it's the kind of beer. It's a six percent slightly malty, uh, but quite bitter lager. Like that's always going to do okay. Christmas beers is is a real risk, and I think the Belgians have it right by brewing something that if you open it next Christmas will probably be better. Mm. Like that's the easiest way around it, you know, start creating vintages for these things, brew beers that you know are going to last at least a year. Um, and then you can, you can derive value that way and, and, and avoid that risk. It might mean you have to store it or the pubs have to store it, but you know, you look at the mania that's around the dollars, um, still a uh, vintages. I think the, the bottles of the reserve are all cost you 70, 80 quid. Um, and, and I think, you know, if we want to brew beautiful traditional Christmas beer that also suits the food and suits the weather, then they're going to be big, bold, strong beers. Yeah. I think the, the worst thing you can do is, is get, get your best bitter recipe and shove some cinnamon and nutmeg in it because, yeah, that's not going to work in January. It's not going to work in February and it's going to be off by March. So um, I'm so guilty as charged. <laughs> so so I, I am every Christmas I brew um, normally it's a, it's a spice barley wine. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's pretty hefty in ABV. And again, that it does stand up in bottle condition to the, the test of time. But uh, there was one year at the Sheffield Brewery Company, this is where I was brewing Emmanuel's from. Um, I was like, well, I'm kind of wanting to upscale this Christmas beer for an event we were putting on as well. So I was like, well, if I brew Crucible Best, which was Sheffield Brewery's best bitter, I'll rack half of that beer to the fermenter as Crucible Best. And then we'll add like honey and golden syrup and all the spices and stuff, you know, and I scaled this recipe up in terms of volume but like we were dialing it down in terms of abv so it's about and rather than being like um eight percent it was like 4.7 percent and the recipe asked for 200 individual cloves and i was like oh, i can't be asked counting those out i'll just put 200 grams in <laughs> and uh, i had landlords complaining they couldn't get the taste of uh clove and toothpaste out of their beer lines for months <laughs> Yeah, 200 grams of clothes. Jeez. I raised my yeah. eyebrows at 200 clothes, let alone 200 grams. Oh, it. dear. Yeah. We had bottles of that set around for a while afterwards. But some people loved it. You know, so I, 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 it was too much. I, I was like, I've ruined this. <laughs> some people really genuinely enjoyed it. As, as, as the, you know, the, the barley wine style, it, you know, it can, can, it can handle out. I mean, I only ever really brewed that volume on like 100 litres. And I can't remember how many cloves I put in it, but it could handle the cloving level. But, yeah. I, anyone out there listening, if you're doing a five barrel brew of a Christmas beer, 200 grams of cloves is way too much. <laughs> uh, I mean, so, so just um, w- one of the things I noticed in your book was about dry January. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'd, I'd love, you know, I, th- I think a lot of brewers listening to this will know how um, dry January affects breweries in the pub industry. But I, I, I guess I'd love to know, like, does it, hold any advantages for beer consumers dry January and how can breweries and bars make the most of that quite a month? Well, I mean, yeah. So I talk in the book about how particularly 
you know, if you want to take some time off at Christmas and you know that you're going to be um, slower in January, whether, you know, even if you release a low alcohol beer, you know, people are drinking less of everything around then. Um, the best thing I've seen lots of brewers do is, is brew some special lagers. Mm. So stuff that you can put in tank in mid December to fill those tanks over the time. And then you bring them, bring them out of their slumber towards the end of January. Um, that can be a great way of, of making, making something of the opportunity where you're not going to be having to turn around in the tanks. Um, the other thing I talk about in the book mostly as well is, you know, I do do a section that's on literally dry January, but my conclusions are that, you know, a much better way to cut back after the excesses of Christmas would be, you know, through small slash table beers. Um, because I think, you know, I did dry January this year because I, I did it for the book. I did it as research. Um, but I wouldn't want to do it again because, to, to be honest, low alcohol beers, however good they are, are never going to be comparable to full strength beers. However, table beers, small beers can be. You can have a beer, you know, if anybody's tried Gad's number, is it 11 or 12? They're 1.2% IPA or has tried any Colonel Table beers, Lula by, mm. um, by Beak, um, and who I focus on in the book, which is Small, small Beer Co., um, who their strongest beer, I think, is 2.8. Um, you know, those beers are absolutely delicious and come in all kinds of different styles. And I think that it could be a real boon to the industry if we, instead of worrying about dry January, started to produce and improve at producing really low AB beers that allow people to cut back without um, having to make the ultimate sacrifice of, of losing the alcohol entirely and, and losing the diversity in it. Yeah, totally. I had a 2.8% small IPA from Sheep in Wolf's Clothing recently. I uh, can't remember the name of it, but it was it was lush, you know, for such a small beer. They, they absolutely nailed the hopping rate. And, um, you know, you, you could tell it was a low alcohol beer, um, but not, not low as in like 0.5, but like a, a smaller beer. But I was just like, this This is the kind of beer that I would gladly drink in an evening and not think, oh, I've had a few beers tonight. Um, mm-hmm. Because one of the things I found as a, a, a beer broadcaster and working in beer is that uh, my alcohol consumption has gone up massively. <laughs> um, you know, and it's... And then I'm, I'm mindful of that, both from a, a health and weight perspective, but just from a, um, you know, drinking alcohol perspective. And, um, you know, so it, it, there can be that temptation, as you say, you know, to, to do dry January, but I've, I, I did it a couple of years back as well. And, um, I, I just hated it. Um, you know, not because I'm like shaking or anything like, give me a spice barley wine full of cloves, you know, um, <laughs> but, but just cause like, it's nice in an evening just to have a beer, you know, to, yeah. And you stuff. can totally have that relaxation effect, both the psychological and the sort of the, the placebo with a with a small beer um and if you end up having two of them you're not going to feel guilty about it and i think it, you know it's a real opportunity for brewers to maybe embrace that in 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 the coming years and, and give small beer a go because you know there's a wealth of information out there it's what the uk is best at nobody makes low abv beers like us um some of the biggest brands in the uk are like dark star hophead hophead so um I think I think rather than sort of wringing our hands and worrying about the low outgrowth of the low alcohol industry, we should be offering an alternative to consumers that goes right. It's not alcohol free, but it's 
a damn sight lower than anything else you're going to be drinking for the rest of the year or what you just did in December. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so let, let's just um, hop forward to May where you talk about forage beer. Um, I, I love the idea of forage beer. I've, I've never brewed one, but I, I love the idea of going out and finding some raw ingredients in the forest somewhere. So can, can you just talk a little bit about that? For any brewers listening to this, um, you know, how, how would they put a forage beer recipe together? What should they be looking for? What should they avoid? Uh, and so on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's something that I've got really excited about. I've always been a big lover of mixed firm beer, um, but I've never really um, appreciated the amount of forageable ingredients that we have in this country. And, and I realized it about well, it would have been about three years ago, I went foraging with um, Stu Winston, who who's one of the co-founders of, of Yonder Brewing. Um, and we were foraging for nettles. They were brewing a nettle pilsner. Um, but he was just, it was an, a, an amazing experience because just every couple of minutes, he'd just bend down and pluck something from a bush or from the earth and go, try that. And when he realized the whole world could be a plate, it's, it's a very eye-opening experience. And I mm. tried some amazing things. There was... Um, wood sorrel that tastes of lime um there was gorse that tastes of coconut there was you know i didn't eat the nettles but the beer itself um had a really um a, a really kind of hop like quality to it like not bitterness but just that that lovely um uh, so hard to describe what nettle is if anybody's if anybody's had anything with it but sort of an earthy but very pleasantly earthy savory kind of note to it um and stew and, and yonder just do fantastic amounts of, of these kinds of beers and knowing the flavors that they're going to get from it um in terms of you know if you wanted to give one a go i'm not the person to ask because i don't know the food safety aspects of it i don't know um exactly the quantities or anything like that but you'll find that foragers are huge they're very evangelical about it and they will give you all the information you possibly need. Like Stu is one of the resources I went to endlessly for this book. There's a whole double page spread of um, things that he's picked and I've taken photos of and he tells us what they are and the flavors that you can get from it are just, um, just incredible. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it, I buy some foraging books, identify some flavors that you want, have a chat to, to people like Stu um, and, you know, just, if there's a flavor you want to find in and you want to get into a beer, there's probably some kind of British produce, either wild or, you know, less commercially grown, um, that, that could put that in there. Um, and I think, I think, it, you know, it's another way that we can really set ourselves apart from, you know, the dominating, um, message of, you know, hops are best. Um, I was actually, so where I've moved to, I'm pretty near to a brewery, uh, called well, a brewery, sorry, a blendery. Uh, called crossover blendery mm. so they're all spontaneous fermented stuff they they brew it at elgids and then tanker it over and they consider themselves brewers blenders but m most of the focus they have is actually on the fruits that they're using so they're huge lovers of british fruit they know all the 250 different varieties of british plum and they're trying <laughs> to work their way through it producing beers with all of them nice. um when i last went there they were picking cherries from a local tree um, that was going to go into a beer and, you know, the, to taste something so much of beer is about the experience and to taste something that, you know, is an entirely 
entirely unique experience. It's a cherry tree from near crossover blendery made with beer with yeast from near crossover blendery brewed and aged at crossover blendery and blended by those two guys that run it. Um, you know, it doesn't come, there are many experiences to me that are more exciting than, than that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that because uh, as you're talking, it, it makes me think about um, without sounding too Zen or spiritual or anything. Like I, something really excites me about um, like ingredients from the earth. You know, I can um, I, I can be out, um, and I normally find this when I'm on summer holiday and I've got a bit more time to reflect and think about beers. Maybe I'd like to brew. You know, the the, the idea of taking ingredients that are a native to the soil around me um just excites me far more than importing ingredients from halfway around the world and, it, and in some ways because of the situation the uk finds itself in with brexit and being not in the being in the single market and as we've seen with all the uh lorry uh, heavy good driver shortages and petrol not being available and so on it's it's almost like we've we've got to you know get up our loins and use what's around us you know um and i don't know i mean i guess this comes back full circle to the hot conversation we're having earlier i mean do, do you think would you can you envision a time where you think more brewers will be reaching out to stuff that's within a few miles of their brewery to, to make ingredients you know, to make beers with, or I think it's always going to be a niche. Right. Um, and I think that to some extent, British hops are always going to be a niche as well within that sort of craft beer segment. I think what will happen is Harlequin, Olicana, Jester, any other hops that sort of come out and, and do well, they'll enter the circulation next to Citra, Sabro, Galaxy, Nelson, and, you know, it won't necessarily be, we'll probably have this phase of going, it's a British IPA, but in five years time, it would just be back to, it's an American style IPA, but you know, there's Olicana in there. Um, I think, I think in this global world, unless, you know, the whole world does go to shit, uh, which is looking very, very likely. <laughs> Indeed. Um, we're always going to have a global outlook when it comes to beer. I think it's one of the really great things about beer. And there's obviously hugely regrettable consequences of that. You know, the intense farming methods that are needed to grow hops correctly, the incredible pollution that sending these hops all around the, the world causes. But I think that consumers will always expect that, that diversity and that choice in what they're drinking. Yep. So you know, I'd, I'd love to see British hops really come up and really compete with American hops, but I don't think they're ever going to take away from it. I think also we'd be naive to think that another hop like Citra is coming. You know, th this true all-purpose hop that, uh, I mean, you could you could just drop it into the bottle just before you package and it would still be brilliant. It's just this absurd plant. <laughs> um, and I think that the chances of us coming up with another one like that is, is kind of tricky. And, um, I think we just have to embrace that. And from a seasonality perspective, I always think of it as an opportunity to taste, you know, most of this book is about, um, rooting yourself where you are, but mm. there's definitely an opportunity and a seasonality to, um, transporting yourself a bit like at the moment, you know, we're, it should be autumn by now, but you know, global warming's decided, no, I'm going to make summer come back for a bit 
Um, and so I'm there with like my thick autumn coats, desperate to put them on. Every now and then it's cold in the morning. So I put it on and by midday, I'm like, <laughs> good Lord, I'm boiling. <laughs> and and I think you can kind of do that with beer. You know, you can have a, a Florida vice, a taste of, you know, the Florida summer in the middle of winter. You can see what autumn's like in on the West Coast of America with the West Coast IPA or, you know, with a mixed firm Nelson beer, you can you can see what the you know, the terroir tastes like down in, in New Zealand. And that's incredibly exciting, but we have to approach that always with balance and with respect for the environment and understanding that something local might just root us and be more enjoyable than something that's come, you know, from the other side of the world. Yeah. Brill, well, it's been amazing to have you on the show, Johnny. Um, I guess one last question before we tell people where they can get the book from. Um, where do you see beer in maybe a year's time? Uh, I, I mean, I remember when COVID was happening, first starting to happen at the end of last year, making all kinds of predictions. And, you know, I think the demise of the British pub has been slightly over-exaggerated over the last year. I think we've done okay, although I'm really worried about the rates um, and the, re- the rents that people are paying at the moment. And maybe we might see continued high closures carrying on, which is going to have a huge knock-on effect on the amount of taps available to independent brewers. So I think there's going to be a contraction in terms of opportunity. There's going to be a huge, huge increase. Well, sorry, not a huge increase, a continuation of drinking from home. Either, you know, people are still cautious about COVID or people have discovered that drinking at home is a lot of fun. Um, (laughs) It's not as fun as going out, but it's significantly cheaper. You can drink exactly what you want. Um, so I think that, you know, breweries have to set themselves up for more competitive draft lines and conversely, uh, significantly more sales to at home as well. Um, but I also think it's, it's a very exciting time. I definitely see more diversity in what we're, uh, what's being released now. Uh, lots of new approaches, people like crossover with the fruit and the British fruit, people like utopian who are, you know, Oh yeah, it's for sure. Very, very lager focused, but also all British ingredients. Um, and I think that hopefully we'll start to look a little bit more like the American, um, brewing market now, which seems to be a little bit more local. You know, every town has, well, not every town, every city will have a couple of focused lager breweries, a couple of focused IPA breweries, a couple of catch-all breweries, um, and then some small mixed fermentation, even some cask-focused breweries. And, you know, at the moment, everybody's on the IPA train. We've got a lovely lager train that's sort of reaching full steam, and cask is just starting to have a little moment where it was pre-COVID. I hope that can continue. Um, and I really hope that all that sort of solidifies and we end up with more diversity in the industry in, in every sense of the word. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, where can people buy the book from? Uh, so you can buy the book from Camera. Uh, it's, uh, it's published by Camera, so it's on the Camera bookstore. But it's also going to be in lots of independent bottle shops and bookshops. And for a limited time only, uh, you can buy it from Beer Merchants, the online website where you can get the pack of uh, four collaboration beers with it as well. Fun times. Um, yeah, and also I'm doing tap takeovers and meet greet, meet and greets to sign the book all over the UK um, as well. So if you go to my Twitter, at Johnny Garrett, you can see the dates. Amazing. Brill, well, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. We make your beer look as good as it tastes 
and we help you brew up a better business through branding, marketing and consultancy. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers. Cheers.